Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm excited to welcome back returning guest and fan favorite, Daniel McMurtry of Tyra Partners, aka Super Mugatu. Uh, this is a, a better time than ever to play the super, uh, the Mugatu clip. Uh, am I taking crazy pills uh, right now? Uh, Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here and appreciate you having me back on. I'm really excited to have you back because you were notoriously uh, bearish on COVID before others were, you know, sounding the alarm, getting some getting some hate for it. Uh, and recently, you you came up with a came out with a piece. They were saying something like, hey, maybe we handled it great and things are better than we think or things are fine. And you receive a lot of hate for it. So no matter what happens, you're going to receive a lot of hate for it is my takeaway. But why don't you sort of trace your your journey here uh, in, in terms of the bearishness, the bullishness to where you are, and, and, and then we can you know dig in. Sure. So you know, in early January and February, we thought that it was a really interesting setup because we thought the market was generally... I don't want to say extremely overly expensive, but it wasn't cheap. And you were starting to see um, just a lot of kind of signs of topping. And you were seeing things like soft banks, large deals blow up. And, and in the riskier asset classes, you were seeing failures. And so we were kind of cautious. And then, you know, we work a lot in Asia. And so we started to hear how bad this virus was. And, and part of the problem as it started and through this whole thing is, a lot of people have sort of seen pieces of this story before, and so they backfit to it. And so there's a lot of a lot of pattern matching gone wrong in 2020. And so you know when this started happening, everybody was like, "Well, I traded Asia during SARS or this other thing, and I know exactly how this is going to go. It's going to be contained." And so we started looking really deeply at kind of the data that we could get, and and really you can't trust the government data, and our, our kind of test for that is if we try to build an inductive model of the data and a deductive model of the data, does it match? And so a lot of times if you take the inputs that are being published officially and you build out to what like the outputs would be, they don't make any sense. And sometimes you'd have governments being like, well, you had 100 people had cases and there's a 1% death rate and we have 12 dead. And I'm like, wait a minute, 12, 100, that doesn't make sense. And so we started realizing this was really not the same thing. And then we looked at, you know, I used to live in China and I, I know a lot of people in China, I know people in the Chinese government and seeing how they responded to it was the most important tell. You really, you know, I think with a lot of things, you don't want to uh, listen to what people say, you want to watch what they do. And so the Chinese government's response um, was really the big alarm that this was not the same as other things and that it was going to scale faster. And then we started to see it break out elsewhere. And at first we thought it was going to be a supply side issue. We saw, we thought, okay, minimum. We're going to have a trade war type shock on supply chains. It's going to be a problem for a lot of large uh, industries in the U.S. Um, and that alone was enough to kind of shake markets last time. Um, and then, you know, for a while, this buy the dip mentality was so strong that 
um, there would be a negative headline about this virus or about something and the market would be bid uh, up 25, 50 basis points, you know, half a percent. And it got to this point where, you know, we made this joke in the office of the buy the dip mantra had gotten so strong that people didn't even require a dip. When people saw a negative, and, and we actually saw this with a few people talking to them, when people saw a negative, they said, okay, you got to buy that because once the negative headline gets digested, the market will move higher. But there weren't any sellers left. It was just buying. And I could go into a very long discussion about how you know, equities, equity markets are, are functioning very differently now than they have in the past. I think Michael Green, you know, is an ex-teal guy, uh, has done a really good job of breaking that down. But February 23rd was kind of the day that there was finally a headline that was big enough to really scare the shit out of people. And that was really when it when it hit Italy. Um, and it moved from China to Korea. And when we started to see it move into country two, three, we realized, okay, this is going to be very hard to contain. We had a bunch of data on how many people were moving around. You could build very simple statistical models and see that it was kind of a lock then. And um, and I wish we'd, we'd pushed the short harder. We had shorted a bunch of stuff, bought index put options, things like that. But the market was so defiant to any sort of bearish information that we really just didn't have the conviction to go for the throat because we were worried we'd just get rolled over. Um, and then when it hit Europe and all of a sudden it was affecting, you know, I don't mean to disrespectful anybody by this but i think frankly uh, it hit white people a lot of people got freaked out and i was freaked out for you know three or four weeks prior to that but the second it hit italy all of a sudden it was real to people which i think there's a bias level in there and uh and then everything started to collapse and then when it broke out in new york it just kind of continued to cascade it got worse and worse and worse um and you had this huge unwind of all these positioning issues where you had a lot of a lot of hedge funds different types of investment vehicles that you know a lot of one of the things Wall Street does better than ever, and now Silicon Valley is getting in on this, is anytime any, anything's perceived as being safe, you put leverage on it. The returns go down. All of a sudden, it becomes a 5 to 10% return type thing. It's like a bond. And then somebody goes, well, I'd like to make 15, so they lever it. So when you have these big shocks, a lot of things that are perceived safe that have a lot of leverage on them kind of blow up in a micro way. Um, and so in the early part of March, um, you had major dislocations in a lot of different credit markets, asset-backed markets, you know, auto loans, mortgages, all these things. And it wasn't really 2008, eight nine in the sense that the banking system wasn't going to go down, but you were having a risk that credit, which is a much larger asset class than, you know, all of equities and anything similar to it put together, was going to blow up in some way. And the par- hard part about credit is it's much harder to map where everything is. And so people really starting to lose it because you had – you had a real risk that a bomb would go off somewhere. You didn't know where it was. And then all of a sudden you'd find out, okay, there actually is risk at the banks or this, that, or whatever, or, you know, just weird nonlinear things. And so it scared the hell out of people. And at that point, the Fed stepped in and basically said, we're going to completely backstop everything uh, and, and not allow this to happen. So there'll be isolated failures. They said, we're not going to allow a liquidity issue. We're not going to allow market participants access to cash to be the problem. Uh, if the assets are money good. And they stepped in within, you know, a few weeks with more resources than in 2008-9. It took them, you know, over a year to do. Um, There was this instant and extremely powerful response. And on top of that, you had fiscal policy come in, meaning that the government decided to actually start putting money in people's hands. And yet it was slow and inefficient and, you know, all the stuff by paper checks and all that. And it gets caught up in the news. But you had this 
simultaneous thing that come in and I was slow to it because I just was looking at the wreckage around me. And, and for me, it was very hard because almost everybody I know is out of work and a lot of the startups and, you know, friends and families, businesses are not coming back from this, but monetary policy from the fed and fiscal policy from Congress kind of came in and, and injected an absolutely unprecedented amount of money. Now we could have a whole long conversation about, the currency risk involved in doing that or what happens if the dollar depreciates gold, Bitcoin, things like that. But those are extremely existential issues. That's kind of like the financial equivalent I'm talking about. What if the Yellowstone volcano explodes? Um, it could happen. It just it would be so bad that it almost you almost can't even think about it. Um, and also, you know, the U.S. dollar is backed by the U.S. Navy and Air Force. And there are some there are a lot of very weird I'm not, I personally do not believe you can hedge the collapse of the U.S. dollar. If the U.S. dollar collapsed, I think you would have violence and societal collapse and things like that. I do not think it would be a financial phenomenon. So let's set all that aside. Setting all that aside, um, thus far, the government has, particularly for the bottom 50% of income on the distribution, has backfilled almost every, on, in aggregate, obviously some individuals that are that are in bad spots, but it says an aggregate backfilled over 100% of the purchasing power um, of those people if they're on unemployment. Um, and they've provided the extra $600. And um, I think there's a weird thing in markets right now where most people who are looking at markets make a very large amount of money, even within the United States. They may not feel like it to them because relative to other people in markets or VC, they don't make that much money. But compared to, you know, the median family, I think makes 70,000 and meeting individuals in the forties, um, maybe a little lower. Um, and so, you know, if you live in San Francisco, New York, or wherever you, you probably have a very skewed perception of these numbers and haven't really dug into those. Um, but for a lot of people, they're making actually more money now, which is a really weird scenario. And so, you know, when, when this government money kind of stepped in, you had a few things happen. The markets all ramped. They all went completely vertical. And a lot of that was, positioning. Hedge funds had short positions or didn't have as much long exposure as they needed to. And also the markets are very illiquid. So as everybody was forced to buy for one reason or another, it pushed prices up more than it would normally because there weren't that many shares offered. So just a supply and demand imbalance as anybody who trades crypto is, I'm sure, familiar with. Um, at the same time, the index weights of the big S&P 500 and, and the QQQ and others are so skewed towards tech, which was amazingly resilient in this, that there's been a really you know big disproportionate effect there. And also those names are now so large that if you're a scale asset provider, like you're an endowment or a sovereign wealth fund, there just aren't very many stocks you can put money into, but all the tech majors you can. Uh, and so those are, those are zapping flows. And also because there really wasn't a white collar layoff, um, 401k contributions and things like that, passive money really has not budged at all. It's just continued to plow in the market. So you had kind of this perfect technical setup where off the bottom, it's just gone completely vertically. And, you know, economically, fundamentally, it this could not be worse for any business that's non-tech. And it really couldn't be better for any business that is tech because everybody's distributed, everybody's having to go online. There's a lot of social normalization of all these different digital platforms. People are willing to try new, you know, normally people shop on Amazon because it's the first web page they go to, not because it's the best price, not because it's the most convenient, it's just it's the name. Now people are actually trying out Shopify and Etsy and all these other things. And obviously a lot of people use it before, but now people are really, you know, you're stuck at your computer all day. So you're going to try different things. And so it's, it's a, kind of re-Cambrian explosion or an on-trend step function up 
um, indigenization. And I think when we come out of this, every business will, like the table stakes for operating a business, whether it's purely digital or omni-channel or whatever, are going to be higher because you're going to have to provide all that stuff. Um, so in this very weird environment where the tech economy in terms of revenue and all that is doing very well um, and everything else is doing very poorly, but the consumer remains strong. And so we kind of wanted to write a piece of like saying, okay, we're going to throw all of our bearish views out and we're going to say, okay, how does, okay, how does this end up looking good in retrospect? And I think one of the things you have to realize when you write a bull thesis in a bad time is it always looks stupid. And there are always people who have very good arguments for why it could be wrong. And this has been true in every single move out of recession ever is there are 50 ways it can go wrong, but there are so many people basically working together to make stuff happen that you just end up going through what, what looks like on paper, a very low probability outcome. So you're playing a poker hand where you've got like two outs, but because everybody is working together, to rig the deck, it ends up actually working out. So Basically, the view we have is that if the government keeps providing money to consumers and they keep interest rates low, and so as long as there's no bankruptcies, and if the consumer gets more money, then as things reopen, whenever it is, businesses, you know, the big risk here is businesses reopen, they don't have that much revenue. So they don't really, they don't, they're not willing to take risk, right? You can't take risk if you don't have revenue. So you can't hire people, you can't do CapEx, all that. And that's what we saw a lot of in Q1 earnings calls. Every company said, you know, we're doing okay, it's bouncing back, but we're cutting CapEx and we're laying people off. But if there's a lot of consumers coming in, if there's a lot of customers that want to spend their money, that's going to really fix people's risk attitude really fast. Because if I run a restaurant on one corner and this guy's in the other corner, and we both have lines, whichever player runs out of inventory first makes less money. So you just have a nice little game theory setup. So if you have if you have the consumer really, really strong through this and out of this, the speed with which you're going to have a bottom up recovery is much faster. And it's, you know, it's, it's really not, it's not trickle down economics. It's actually bottom up. You need to get money to people so that they can spend it so that businesses have a reason to take risks to get those dollars. And that'll kind of get you a flywheel action. And so really like, you know, and the other thing is things got so scary and bad and everybody's so negative that one of the things that's really powerful in markets is just what is the next piece of news, particularly when they start being the same type of news. And everything's been so bad for weeks and weeks and weeks that now like every piece of news you see pretty much is incrementally positive. The absolute level isn't positive, but it's incrementally positive. And then the other problem is everybody who's worried about any of this stuff has already sold. So there's not like who's left to sell. That's the other big problem. You need a break of confidence in people who are bullish. So that could definitely happen if like consumer weekends or something like that. And I do think one of the things you've seen from some tech companies, um, and I've spoken to some other people who, you know, either executives there or elsewhere who are concerned that the reason tech has been so strong has been kind of a pent up short term demand because people are stuck inside and they don't really think it's going to continue. So if we see tech rollover, look out below. If we see consumer spending rollover, look out below. If the government decides to not extend uh, unemployment insurance and things like that past uh, June. Look out below. You know, there's a lot of ways in which this goes wrong, but as long as everybody kind of keeps playing ball, and thus far everybody is keep playing ball, you're going to have incrementally improving information every month. And yeah, I think I do think people, I do think things are overvalued right now uh, in in liquid markets. But it's very hard for prices to correct when you just have incrementally improving information. And and what may have to happen is things might have to get almost back to normal 
And with all this liquidity coming to the system, prices get really, really high. And then actually when things get good, then things crash. So a lot of people are thinking because things are bad right now, therefore price has to obey me right now. And that's just not how it works. So there's a, there's a real risk here to people who are bearish and right that things are bad, that they don't get paid on that bearish view until things are good again, which is kind of a mind twister. And how do you, you mentioned in, the, in your piece on, on Medium that you haven't adjusted your book accordingly yet. What would need to be true for you to to to, to do that, and and what would and what would that look like? And how are you sort of navigating your own sort of you know behavioral you know bullish versus bearish you know uh, sort of evolutions? Yeah, so I think that if you're if you're in any sort of risk taking position, that the main thing that's important above all is kind of maintaining if you're discretionary, is maintaining your psychological well-being so that when there is a clear good risk return you can take the shot or or play the hand or whatever you don't want to be burnt out you don't want to be questioning yourself uh you don't want to be refusing good odds because the last time the good odds went against you so i'm trying to really manage around that because i think this is going to be a long and annoying and extended period and i think this is also a period where the more research you do the more psychological burden there is so i've noticed this with myself i've noticed this with other uh, people I know that do really good deep dive research is they'll go read 2000 pages of commentary from different people and they'll come back and they'll just be so stressed out because they see all the ways things can go wrong. And yes, you have that knowledge, but now you also have the cortisol. And so it's a really weird kind of catch 22. So for me, I'm trying to say, how do I simplify it down? You know, I'm watching what's going to go on with fiscal policy. That's kind of the biggest thing. If I could only know one thing, it would be whether or not there's a fiscal uh, boost. And I think that that might ironically require if the, I think if the stock market were to go down 20 percent tomorrow, I think the Republicans and Democrats would come together and pass a bill in like 24 hours, which is scary. But also the, the market, I think, knows that, which is weird because then maybe it won't happen. It's kind of Schrodinger's stimulus. You know, if, if you need it, it'll be there. But maybe that means you won't need it or maybe the economy needs it, but the prices won't allow it to happen. It's a weird thing to think about. So I'm watching everything to do with stimulus. I'm watching this incremental data out of states like Georgia. So there's places like Homebase and others that are publishing and Placer and a bunch of other firms that are publishing pretty good short-term data on what's going on. Um, and I'm really concerned that the initial bounces out of reopening are just kind of pent-up demand. Like people are like, okay, I want to go out and get one meal or okay, I want to go get this thing or whatever, but it's not going to carry through to real spending power. And that will definitely be true if fiscal stimulus doesn't continue in my opinion so i'm really watching all of the like early noisy data because if that stuff starts to roll after the first week or two um that's going to be really concerning but if it's if, if i just over the next few weeks if i just continue to see everything yes off a of very low base a lot of people are making a lot of sarcastic comments because it's like minus 90 then it's up 50 whatever and i'm like yeah i know i understand that i'm a short seller like i was the bear guy here i'm trying to figure out how do i look super wrong because I don't think it'll be consistent. I think that if we if it starts building, there'll be some point where it'll inflect because it'll start to get normalized again. So I'm watching a lot around what's going on in the reopening states, um, how are businesses doing that are reopening? Because that's the other thing is I think business sentiment's really important here. If if you know whether you know depart doesn't matter the industry. If people in an industry are asking around and everybody's having a good time you know, you're going to see more activity in that industry. You're going to see more hiring. You're going to see more CapEx, more spending on software, more spending on everything. So I'm just watching kind of that and trying to figure out, okay, what happens next? 
And, you know, if I don't see something break down, then I'm going to go in and try to invest in, you know, individual businesses that I really like and kind of not pay attention too much. Um, but right now I, I have very low exposure. I've got a lot more cash than I do normally because I think that, you know, any one of 25 things could happen. And I think we could be right back at the lows. And the other thing that's very unique about this, and I, I talked about it on a real vision and a few other places was that the market isn't offering like skew. Normally when you have this type of disruption, there's stuff that's crazy mispriced. I went through every publicly traded restaurant based on the information that's out right now. I don't think there's really much that's like that crazy mispriced. There's some really terrible restaurant chains that are bombed out, but Chipotle, Wingstop, anything that's killing it is sky high. The pizza guys are sky high. Um, there's not a lot that's interesting there. Now, as you move, if you're, you know, somebody like me and you look through the supply chain, then there's some interesting stuff as you go up to like suppliers and things like that. But there's not that many mispricings where, you know, normally, ironically, like, you know, in like an environment like last Q3, there were a lot of things that I thought were really mispriced. Um, we had a big Q3 last year. But now I'm looking around and I'm like, everything's kind of, it's all one bet. That's really what makes me very uncomfortable is everything I'm seeing in equities is all one bet because, and so that makes it a lot harder to structure a portfolio where you're going long or short because it doesn't really matter, you know, yeah, this company could be doing incrementally well or, or, or bad. But if any of the things that I just talked about in terms of the macro side, and I also think anybody who thinks you can really do bottom up right now. Now, look, if you want to do bottom up and you want to invest in a business, you want to hold that stock for 10 years and it has no debt and it has six years of cash or something. Sure. But anybody who thinks your returns this year will be determined by bottom up is high. Like, I don't know what they're talking about. It's just like they're just it's just wrong, like empirically wrong. And it's not going to happen. If the macro allows, then bottom up may be used, utilizable. But Right now, it's it's and as a guy who is a bottom up person, it's very frustrating. So a lot of people, that's a bunch of the flack I've been getting on Twitter is people are like, "Well, I'm a deep fundamental investor. Now I'm talking about fiscal stimulus, and I'm like, half the damn economy is functioning on government checks, and you want to like brush that off because you want to sit here and you know fantasize about Ben Graham? It's stupid. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, I'm having to get a little real with some people who are like trying to talk to me about value metrics and i'm like you have the, the whole systems on life support and the question is how good is that life support how long is going to last and if and if they undershoot it at all we will have a snowball effect recession here that will take a long time to fix yeah. because i this is this is going to be such a destructive thing to risk appetite i mean almost everybody in my family is like their businesses restaurants things like that gone not coming back and they and also you have you know Fauci, people everybody seems to know that there's going to be a fall wave too. So who's really going to go spend a bunch of money to like reopen and spruce up a big restaurant when they think this thing could all get shut down again in the fall, or at least you might be stuck at most businesses don't work at 30 to 60% of capacity. Um, and I think there's a big, there's a huge bifurcation. Actually, it's the biggest bifurcation I've ever seen between people who live in a spreadsheet and people who live in businesses. Everybody I know who operates a business, every venture capitalist I know that's been inside, you know, been an operator, um, are scared shitless. They are like, you know, and even even companies which are reporting beats are are like telling people who are currently buying the stock, you know, please do not extrapolate this. That they're worried. Yeah. Um, and the stock market guys really think that, you know, 
they are buying this bull thesis that there's just going to be this tidal wave and it's just going to crush all of these worries. And it could happen. And, and, and I think the thing is, the most important thing here is that there, this has never happened before. So anybody who's trying to draw these comparisons, like, first of all, like nothing about the world now is similar to early 1900s. I'm sorry to my many history nerd friends, like nothing about a world of instant global communication and nukes yeah. <laughs> and all this is similar to early 1900s. I mean, other than like human nature, but, yeah. you know, that's it, silly. This has never happened before. Nobody's ever seen this before. Nobody has any information. Nobody has any predictive power. And at the same time, people feel very confident. And I think the reason is, and Muhammad el said this, and I have a lot of respect for him. And, and he was pointing out, he's like, people can't internalize this data. And so they're just saying, okay, what data do I have? I have price. Price is very, everybody always has price. And the last two times the market did this, 2015, end of 2015 and 2018, it did this dive at Veed and it never looked back and it just went completely vertical. And, um, and so I think that's what they're doing is they're just, they're just comparing it to that. And this is a really like scary time. And the other, the other thing is, you know, you can make cases about this year, but if this is mishandled, this will be the biggest increase in wealth inequality in this country's history yeah. in like a shockingly short amount of time. And you will have something like President AOC or like much worse. The, all these different existential tail risks are building up. And I think people have such a strong bias towards mean reversion right now that really scares me because I, I can see it. Like the bull case I laid out for price, I can totally buy it on now to like Q4 or Q3. But there's no way any of this ends well. I mean, zero chance unless – Unless our politicians start decide to start, you know, getting together and singing kumbaya and and you know being friends or something, I mean, we're going to have so much political strife out of this. And it's not just the presidential elections; it's the local elections, the local elections like Congress, Senate, mayors, all that. You're going to have, you know, you're going to have Senator Tiger King. I yeah. bet you, you know, any amount of money that you're going to have some whack jobs get elected. So it's going to get. It's I think the, the you know. The good news is things are getting incrementally better right now. And the bad news is almost 100% chance they get super weird from here. So, I mean, I can argue the bull and the bear case extremely strongly because I think bottom up is terrible. The bull case is all about incremental information and cost of capital being very low. Um, and whichever one works will, in hindsight, be in doubt as being obvious. Yeah. And so is that why you, you, you neither see a, you wrote, you neither see a V-shaped recovery nor, nor a collapse in your basically somewhere in the middle because of these sort of competing effects or. Yeah. Because I think if you have, so what have they done? This is the interesting thing is the government's come out and they've, they've done an unprecedented amount of kind of fiscal type stimulus that's worked for the most part. I mean, people aren't starving in mass. Obviously some people are having a hard time. They've done this thing that's worked largely from the first, again, in aggregate. That doesn't mean it can't be done better. And I think one of the things people miss is that monetary policy kind of out of 2008 was a lot sloppier and it wasn't enough the first couple of times and it had to get, and then now it's really effective. And so the government actually does get better at things, which, you know, some people struggle with. So they have now a tool which has been shown to be effective. And I think one of the things that's one of the, the big part of the bull thesis that I think bears are missing is. It's not just if they do more right now. If the government successfully proves that they're able to act instantly and bridge through a recession of this magnitude, it completely changes the game, the rules of the game forever. Um, and yes, governments have always been active in markets, but 
you've never had government step in in a matter of weeks and backstop basically the total income of half the fucking population. It's never happened before. And that speed and effectiveness and all that, and then it'll get better. And so if that's the case now, then the question is, why should assets not be, why should assets high, offer high returns if you know anytime there is a systemic level failure, they will not just bail out the banking system, but they will bail out the consumer. So they're going to bail out your balance sheet and your revenue. So why should assets pay high returns? It, it completely breaks almost every traditional model you would use to allocate assets or price assets. And nobody wants to get into that because it's a weird existential question. And obviously, the premise that I'm making there could be violated by a new Congress or president or whoever. But if that becomes the status quo, then the other thing is it actually increases the political risk. Because what happens if um, you know there's a recession in two years and the government says, no, we're not going to mail checks this time? People will literally riot. You will see senators' houses get burned down. You will see stuff you've never seen before because they've now set a precedent that it can be done. So then it's just their choice. They haven't done it. You know, so I think if the market crashes and, and there was, you know, a friend of mine um, is a very good short seller made a point to me where he was like, do you think that the, do you think that we would have gone into quarantine or reacted to coronavirus faster if the stock market had corrected in January or early February? And I was like a hundred percent. And that's, and that's really another like weird existential question is that policy is now responding to the stock market. No question. Um, and the Fed reacts more to non-stock market things. But stock, the stock market is what determines the news cycle, which determines sentiment, political sentiment, political action. And uh, I don't, you know, I wish we lived in a world where that weren't the case, but it is the case. And so if the stock market drops, you know, if we go back to lows, if we go back below like 2,500, they're going to do more fiscal stimulus, you know, because that's period. So there's kind of a put, I'm like, I'm calling it Schrodinger's put. Like it doesn't exist unless you maybe need it. And then if you don't need it, it might not be there, which might actually be bad. It's, it's a weird paradox, but I don't think there's any way we go. I don't see how we go super low on equities here because the risk, as I said at the beginning was, is currency. Like if they're just going to print unlimited money, then maybe the dollar blows out, which, you know, a lot of people, like the second anybody says that, they're like, that's dumb. You don't understand the dollar. I'm like, I'm not, or I'm not actually saying it's going to happen. But even if it did happen, that's not bearish equities. The Zimbabwe stock market does amazing on a, you know, <laughs> because the, the denominator is collapsing. So that like them doing in, infinite printing is not going to, not going to stop the stock market from, from going up. Um, and if it works, the stock market will go up because it doesn't make sense that equities offer that much return over bonds in a diversified format if they're double backed by monetary and fiscal policy. And then you end up with another point, which is that doesn't, that almost for sure does not apply to small and medium enterprise businesses. And so almost every path out of this leads to massive in income inequality and also a huge reduction in the kind of dynamic nature of the economy, where I think it's very bad for startups. It's very good for incumbents. It's very bad for local operators. It's very good for chains. You probably will see no more than no more than sixty percent of independent restaurants will probably reopen. Wow. Uh, um, some of them may attempt here in the short term, but I think by like January twenty twenty one, I think you're going to probably see half, maybe a little more, but probably half of the number of independent restaurants. Um, and I think, frankly, the people who who do keep going, it'll be things like family restaurants. So like nobody who's doing it for money in any way or sense is going to keep doing it. If it's like a Greek family who has eighteen people in the family that all work at the restaurant. They're probably going to keep the restaurant closed. Yeah. But, you know, it's a different type of thing. 
you know, and I, there's a restaurant right down the street here that called Cuba Cuba that makes amazing Cuban food. And, you know, it's kind of a family affair. And if there's any way it can be made to survive, they're going to keep it going. And if anybody's in Richmond, Virginia, they should go down there. But, but I, you know, I think all these things are leading to bigger, longer term societal problems, but I also think all of them are supportive of asset prices. And then the other thing is when you play all of that out, you realize that most alpha that exists in the market will probably be purely liquidity oriented. Um, where if everything's just these major firms and all the money's going into the major firms, then you know, buy, you'll be able to buy some value stuff and do some stuff in a very specific and targeted manner. But I think on a basket level basis, if you're trying to buy all the cheap stocks or all the, you know, the set or whatever, I think all of your returns are, are probably going to just be from, you know, short-term supply demand imbalances and liquidity and things like that. I think it's, I think it's, re- this is all going to really change how markets work, how politics work, how uh, our demographics work. Um, and you also have to keep in mind, like, there are other initiatives, like, you know, there's a huge push right now to try to like revoke like immigrant work visas and things like that. And so uh, there's a lot of things in, there's, in ways in which this is going to get super weird, but the government would have to validate that fiscal put in order for us to go to like S&P 5000. But I also think if we go down, they're going to validate the put. So I think almost the most bullish scenario right now is if we were to trade, if the stock market were to be down 20% over the next few months or weeks or days. Um, and it forced government's hand. I think at that point you'd have to be fully positioned for a massive bubble because I think all the preconditions for, you know, something like 2000, but not as speculative, um, are there. Um, I think it's hugely bullish for other risk assets like Bitcoin, things that are generally non-falsifiable. And, you know, I, I think, I think, I think the most bullish thing that can happen now is a correction that drives another round of fiscal. Because that will validate the market will then know there is a monetary put and there is a fiscal put um, and the consumer will be strong and you have a potential flywheel effect. Um, and I would not be surprised if we went to if we went anywhere below S&P 2500. I would not be surprised if by at some point now at the end of 2021, we hit a little over S&P 4000, potentially, you know, yeah. and potentially much higher. But it's you know this it's it's Schrodinger's put. If yeah. if things get worse, the things that will be done to fix it will show the market that that is there, yeah. and so risk taking will go up, and all of that. So it's a very like, and in a weird sense, if things are good now, the next month through through July, if we get to like August, and things are okay, then the elections here and maybe there can't be more fiscal. And then earnings will be much worse this quarter than last quarter. If things are good between now and like August, I could see the stock market getting obliterated into the election because I think fiscal would be out. Yeah. We could have a potential second wave. Earnings will be terrible. Um, and then you're going to have a loss of confidence, which will be less spending, less income, less spending, and a snowball. So it's, a, it's this really weird like circular pattern. And a lot of it's very timing dependent in terms of it's not just what happens, it's when it happens and what order. Yeah. And what the initial conditions are going in there, um, and the and the payoff skew is insane. I mean, I, I think that's the main thing that people are maybe, you know, missing is, you know, equities could be up or down fifty percent, and uh, and and there's like you know there's a few like the the bear case and the bull case are almost identical. The bull case is X, and the bear case is anything about X changes. Yeah. And so I mean, just for instance, if if consumer spending slowed, and you were to see, like let's take Wayfair for example. Bunch of people stuck at home. Amazon can't deliver big, heavy stuff. Uh, Wayfair has the logistics. 
I, you know, I'm stuck at home. There's some chairs here that I really don't like. And they, I just never sit on them, but now I'm sitting on them and I'm like, all right, those chairs have to go. So I'm going to spend on Wayfair because I'm going to use that right now. Am I going to go back on Wayfair in a week and buy more furniture? No, I just had, I had one purchase I needed to do. I think a lot of online spending right now is kind of like that. I mean, if you look at the amount of advertising money that's been spent on those rubber exercise bands that you can like put in a door yeah. because nobody can lift weights. And I've bought some, um, but I'm not buying any more. If you start to see digital spending roll over, any sort of tech, anything weaken, it's going to be, I mean, very bad for asset prices, very bad for VC, very bad for everything. Um, so it's just, there's a lot of ways in which this gets extremely weird, extremely bad. It's a trend market. As long as things trend a certain way and certain things happen, it's going to kind of behave and really frustrate a lot of people. And I think one of the things that I, I make this mistake a lot, but other people make this mistake is like a lot of people, the reason they're bearish is that they just want to buy something 20% cheaper. Yeah. And as long as that's the case, it's not going to happen because it's just a, it's a very basic game theory scenario. And I did like a Twitter poll the other day where I was like, if the market dropped 10% this week, you would, you know, buy, sell, short, whatever. And it was like 80% of people were like, I'd buy stocks. It was down 10%. I'm like, all right, well, we're not ready yeah. to crash. You know, and that's not a good representative sample of overall whatever, but you know, that's just, that's a trap you can get into. So it's, it's a very, very interesting setup right now. And I, you know, I've published that, that bull thesis and we've got a bear thesis we'll publish at some point. I just, you know, I didn't want to, uh, uh, I've, I've, did, I've been bearish enough. I figured I'd throw the other view out. And I think that the, the reason that the bull view is so dangerous right now is that, I mean, I got some of the nastiest messages I have ever received <laughs> in my life. Like some of them were so nasty that I was like, I'm not even mad. That's impressive. Like that's, <laughs> I, I was like, as somebody that loves trash talking, um, that is really good stuff. But nobody's taking it seriously because it seems so preposterous and unlikely. And I think one of the problems is that you can make 50 different scenarios that are bearish, and there's only one or two that are bullish. But the problem is the one or two that are bullish, that, that, that intuitively feels like um, low odds. But when you look at the mechanisms that are behind the bullish scenarios – they're, they're very reliable and they've been almost hundred percent reliable for the last 10 years. And the funny thing is seeing a lot of people kind of come out right now and talk about lack of experience in markets and things like that. And, and I'm like, first of all, you've never seen this. Nobody's else has ever seen this. This is a nothing about ex no experience you could have is really relevant to this scenario right now. It's, it's, and if, and if you, and if you say that it is, then you don't actually know what happened during that supposed experience you have. Um, so nobody really knows what's going on. And also the, the participants in the stock market are just different. That this is not the same people allocating money that were allocating the seventies, the eighties, nineties, two thousands. Um, how that's happening is different. The companies in the indexes are completely different business models. Yeah. And also just the businesses that make up the economy and the businesses that make up equity indexes are so different now. Um, and a lot of people think that means that there that that like well there still needs to be a relationship like not really there really doesn't need to be a relationship between Facebook and dry cleaners in a neighborhood at all and and that's hard for people to imagine because they 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 have a psychological image of the stock market as being representative of the economy and and in no way it is I mean if you just walk around a neighborhood just count off the businesses and then pull up the S P five hundred weighting or pull up the Nasdaq weighting. You know, maybe if you live, you know, in downtown SF, maybe that even then, it, you know, 
if you were counting in downtown SF, you'd think the S&P was half Starbucks. But, you know, other than that. I, I want to d- double down there, actually, because if people are having trouble, you know, seeing how the S&P is doing so relatively well, while there's, you know, all, all, all this, you know, extreme un- unemployment. I have one friend whose thesis is that S&P is the, is the new savings account because of, you know, interest rates and, 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 and QE. I, I guess I'm curious, a, a couple of questions. One is, what do you think happens to unemployment um, uh, over a period of time? Uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, inequality rising. What, what, what will be done or should be done to, to curb that? And, and then in the last podcast, we talked about uh, generational theft uh, as it relates to housing, healthcare, and education. And I'm curious yeah. how this has affected your thesis there. So I guess unemployment, inequality, and uh, generational theft. Yeah, um, more and more risk is going on the sovereign um, for sure. So whether you know it's benefits, whether they're healthcare, retirement, whatever, that is just all getting loaded onto the U.S. dollar. Um, more, a larger and larger percentage of people every year are not going to be able to build a, a nest egg that they can live on for the later years in their life, which means people are going to have to work more. People are going to need more government subsidy. People are going to vote themselves those benefits. And I think kind of period end of story there. Um, one of the things that's scary to me is every business owner I'm talking to is saying, you know, there's kind of two, two, two steps to it. The first is they're going, wow, you know, I'm really optimistically surprised with how well work from home is going. And a lot of like small business operators just assume people, the reason they, they assume that the reason people wanted to work from home is that they were lazy and they didn't want to work as much. And they're realizing that's not really true. Um, and people are actually a lot more efficient when they don't have to deal with all the nonsense. They just need to get their work done. And people are adults and can handle their own stuff if you hire good people. Now, like a lot of, like my little brother is in college and he was doing some business school case study and he showed me the case study. And like the case study basically like was like all of our employees suck. And I was like, yeah, that's on the company. Like that's, and there was no like responsibility even like it was completely set aside that that could even be the company's fault that they had hired bad people who were lazy and selfish and stole stuff. Literally stole stuff was in the case study. So yeah, if you've hired bad employees and they perform badly, shocker. Um, but that's your incompetence as much as theirs. Um, for people who've hired competent people that are trustworthy and are actually buying in and, and are good people and like people that I would work with, like I don't, like everybody who works on my team, like I don't care if they work from home or a laptop on the beach, like they're going to get their stuff done because we're on the same team and we all, you know, have the right incentives. So everybody who's, who has competent team members is being positively surprised with work from home. And then the other thing is a lot of, a lot of companies, you know, we're very slow to, you know, even now in 2020, very, very slow to use modern software tools. And if they, when they decide to like, it's a lot of stuff like, you know, you have a 70 year old guy who runs a company and when he decides he wants to use software, he like calls a buddy at like an agency and they give him software that's like circa 98 and it sucks. And they go, okay, software sucks. So I'm not going to do this. And now everybody's like, okay, we're going to try all these wonderful tools that Silicon Valley has built this infrastructure suite. And they're amazed at the tools because a lot of times they have people that are redundant because they need to check things or they need systems or whatever. And they're realizing, okay, instead of 12 people in the back office, I actually only need three and like $200 a month in software. So I think there's a lot. I think the next wave of, of layoffs is something we're, we're, we're watching very closely is white collar layoffs, because I think as anybody who's ever worked at a Fortune 500 company or any like anybody who's ever had a job probably knows that like half of middle management does not need to be there. 
like it's, I mean, it's a joke. Everybody makes this joke, but it's actually very true. Like half of the people in most offices don't need to be there for the business to get their job done if the business is run better. And I think this is forcing efficiency. So I think you're going to start to see a lot of white collar layoffs. What you're seeing the first wave of is sales and marketing. And that's kind of just pure business sentiment is there's, there's fewer people looking to buy. So you need fewer people to cover them. Um, so you're seeing a lot of sales and marketing job layoff. Those are mostly commission-based payment people. So maybe their salary is 50 grand, but then they might have total all-in comp of 170 or 250,000 because they get commission. Um, they're getting cut. Um, but I think you're going to start to see a lot more jobs getting cut in back office and, and, and middle management because these companies are embracing software and realizing like, okay, we can train five people to use the software and we don't need 20 people to accomplish all these functions. So I think the amount of employment necessary to gain the same productivity, I don't think is going to be the same. And I think that the places where there's kind of a one-to-one relationship between amount of labor needed and business output are, are hourly labor jobs. You know, it's working in a McDonald's, it's driving a truck, it's things like that. And those are very important jobs, but like not things people aspire to generally. And, um, and that's not a, it's not a great scenario if like our economy is flexing around incremental fast food jobs. So I think we're going to have structurally, I think I, I would just be very surprised if unemployment snapped back in a major way. Now, look, if we get to, if we don't have a wave two, if we get to like, if we get to July and August and basically every month and companies are reporting weekly data now. So if everybody's kind of saying, wow, we're really surprised the consumer's back out to play, everybody's spending money, it's all good. I think you will be amazed at how fast people get hired back because I think it'll impose a game theory situation on management where anybody who's not willing to take risk will just lose massive market share to whoever will. And I think you'll see employment come back really, really quickly. But again, that comes back to how correlated everything is. If the consumer isn't strong because of wave two or because of lack of fiscal or this set or whatever, that's going to be rough. So, you know, I, I think it's it, the kind of money line odds here are that this is going to take several years for employment to normalize. Um, I mean, last time we had this less job loss in this, but last time we had anything close to this, it took 10 years for jobs to normalize. So, you know, there's a huge, a huge range of, of outcomes there. And again, that comes back to stimulus and is the government going to back this and then kind of going back to the generational theft thing the problem is we had this problem before and now we have a problem where you have to put everybody on government payroll or half of the half the country on government payroll and and then you know how do you get people off it at some point you're going to have to cut this stuff off and there's going to be a dead zone which will be uncomfortable so even if you were to go through january when we get through January, you know, there's, there's, you're still going to have probably close to 10 million unemployed, I think. So it's going to be, it's, it's just, it's going to be really hard to see how this get cleanly normalizes. But the only, you know, if you want to have incremental progress, you're just going to have to extend more entitlements and more things like that. And I don't know, it's, it's going to be very weird. I don't think that you're a year from now, this is going to all be like easy or normal. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everything goes great. But I think this is going to be a big societal moment. I think it's going to redefine politics. I think it's going to force us to the left. It's already forced the Republicans so far to the left. It's non-recognizable to me. Yeah, you, then you still have the huge problems around entitlements and things like that. And so, you know, the question is, when does that ever matter? But I think in the short term, you're just going to have way more deficit spending and entitlements. And, you know, there's really no other way. Yeah, it's interesting. And maybe we can close on, on the politics front. I mean, last time you heard, we talked about the 2020 election, obviously, you know, b- before this, 
but there, there are a few different takes. Tyler Cowen has written um, that it's, you know, progressive issues, identity politics stuff is getting less play now that there, you know, anytime there's a war or, or a pandemic, you know, people are concerned about their safety and less so about identity, some of these identity issues. Um, you know, some people say the virus broke woke, uh, so to speak. Other people are saying, no, uh, Honorable Kling says, uh, uh, no, they're just going to pivot to environmental issues as opposed to identity I- issues as their sort of main, um, you know, sort of rallying cry. And then uh, people like you, I guess, are saying that uh, this is justifying, you know, increased government spending a- across the board. So uh, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I've, I've read Tyler's stuff. I think that the tough thing about gaming this out is is time frame. So I've been amazed, like the Twitter's a trash fire all the time, right? But in the real world, like this is just completely iced political divisiveness in this country. And as much as people are annoyed with Trump in a lot of places, you know, I have I have a lot of people in my family who have uh, dementia and things like that. And, and Biden, in my opinion, very clearly has some sort of, you know, CNS degenerative disorder. And it's just not an exciting guy. And he's been hiding. We haven't heard from him. And he's a, a prop candidate. And that's just, I think, the reality. And I, I like Biden. I've met him. And he was a very nice guy. And I have nothing against him. But I think that, you know, our view in our last podcast and in the kind of end of the year letter thing we put out, we kind of said, look, that the reason you're seeing all this wokeness and uh, anger and all this is is actually rational economic incentives. And so that's our, our framework for looking at it is that if you look at the initial preconditions of where people are in the world, that it's very normal that this type of um, anger would, would emerge. And that has gotten so much worse. And yes, in the short term, I think similar to like when you had early 2000s, you had wars and things like that, there's a, a new place for people to focus. Uh, and right now, people have to focus on this other stuff. But the second this passes, in whatever way it passes, or the second this normalizes, I think we're going to swing back to, I don't know that it'll be identity politics, but we're going to swing back to a, a divisive um, political environment. And I think it's going to be way worse, because I think you're going to have a lot more people who are a lot more desperate um, and who have a lot less upside. Because the other thing that's been under-discussed is how this is going to affect uh, education, upside opportunities, a lot of these jobs that people use to advance socially, you know, the higher paying entry jobs out of college, things like that, uh, acceptances to college, things like that. Those are all now bottlenecks. I think every like college degree for the next several years is probably going to have an asterisk on it because, you know, you did Zoom classes for however long, which I would love to see be the end of accreditation because I think it's a massive parasite on society. But I think we're going to get through this point of focus on the virus and quarantine all this i think we're then we're going to get back to an extreme you know i don't know what the meme will be it might be green stuff it might be identity politics might be whatever i can say this is the first election or this is the first recession ever where most of the job losses i think like 65 percent have been women and been hugely disproportionate towards non-white and so again all that comes back to massively amplifying the inequalities that have existed in this country and one of the things that a lot of people are now saying, and I'm ripping off several people from Twitter very liberally here, but this is one of the first times we've had a massive recession. What's novel about this recession is it is amplifying all of the trends going into it, not changing them. So the digitization, massively upspiking. Inequality, massively upspiking. The just general spread between haves, have-nots, incumbents, new entrants, et cetera, all of that is being 
just turned up to 11 and it's going to swing back around in a really nasty way. And it always has. And I, and we don't have any plan right now for how we address that. And I think what people miss is that one of the reasons the stock indexes do so well over time, for instance, is that companies do fail, but there are other new companies coming up that replace them. And it's one of the big reasons why the indexes as they rebalance mechanically, just smash most people over extended periods of time. This is going to really slow the dynamic nature of the U.S. economy, and the new new firm formation is going to be slow. One of the interesting data series to look at is small business formation out of the crisis and how long that took to come back. And this is so much worse for that. So I think you're going to see far fewer startups, far fewer small businesses, you know, far fewer people having the ability or willingness to take risk. I do think there's a risk that you have something happen like what happened in the Great Depression, where this just for a generation or for an extended period of time alters people's perception of risk and a willingness to take risk, increases savings rates, things like that. And all that's very economically bearish. You have to be very careful how you frame questions of political analysis now, because you had the left and the right. And then when the right kind of became Trump's party, you had this extreme reaction by the left. And then there's this kind of third group now that's the anti-anti. And they're not, and I, a lot of the Teal guys, I, I would emphasize, are kind of like this, where like, they're not necessarily pro-Trump, but they're very anti the people who don't like Trump because they think they're irrational and upset like, and non-scientific and angry and all this. And they, they think their ideas are just bad and will end poorly. And so now you have these meta levels of politics where you have groups that are just anti some anti-group. And I also know people now who are on the left or consider themselves centrists who are anti that group who are anti the, like, they think they're closet, like, Republicans, or, like, one people said they're closet fascists. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think anybody, like, holds, I think most people mean well. They just have different viewpoints and things like that. But, um, and, I, and I've been amazed, like, one of the things I do with Twitter a lot is I actually just call people on Twitter. If I'm about to go in a fight with somebody on Twitter, sometimes I'll just, like, DM them and call them. And I almost always have a good conversation because I realize, like, oh, okay, this this is their perspective. This is my perspective. But, I think that this is going to get extremely nasty on the other side of this because I, I think we we are we are kicking the can on societal problems. We're solving a lot of financial problems. We're solving a lot of market microstructure structure problems. Um, we are solving some income problems in the short term. But when you come out of this, I just don't think that uh, I don't think it's going to be good. And, and I and I'm worried that in the fog of war, there's also chances that whenever things get really messy, you have real risks that really bad decisions are made. And so like so many of my favorite people who are building awesome companies or are just doing incredible things are people who came to the United States at five, 10, 20 years old. And a lot of them, you know, I have friends who have PhDs from Stanford and machine learning who've had to leave the country, which is insane. I mean, I don't even know what the market value of like a PhD from machine learning in from Stanford has to be worth millions of dollars. And we're like, we're sorry, you didn't win this lottery game. Uh, stuff like that just like is absolutely insane. And, and then we're competing against countries that are not making those mistakes. So I, I, I have a lot of existential concerns about where our country's going, what it looks like. And I think the one thing I say about politics is I think I'd say about politics right now is more people than I maybe have ever seen before are convinced that the other side is evil. The other side means bad or means for bad things to happen. And I'm just very worried that like 
mistake there are the things that could happen that would be truly disastrous are things that probably wouldn't make headline news right now seemingly minor policy changes seemingly minor judge appointments things like that that will really corrode the system over time and i would say from from monetary policy to fiscal policy to uh the voting base to entitlements to all this we are now really the chips we're putting on the table that we're gambling are the sovereign are our country's you know full faith and credit are like the, our, our political structure our societal structure we are we are betting on the bedrock now and thus far what's happened is every layer above the bedrock has broken and we've ended up now at the bedrock and now we're making a bet and a lot of people are you know almost all the models you're taught in economics are assuming that the bedrock is the bedrock and it never breaks but if something breaks here you know these are the types of things that lead to countries reigns as being uh, atop the world ending over time. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but you know, the, I always want to reverse engineer to the bull case. And as, even though I published that bull case paper, I'm having the hardest time I've ever had making the 20 year bull case for America. And I think that's a big reason why Warren Buffett was, I think bearish, but you know, people will disagree with me on that. But I, I think I think anybody who's looking at this long term knows that there are major problems right now. On if you try to look at the if you try to analyze the U.S. on a ten or twenty year basis, it's a lot more concerning than the U.S. on a two year basis. Let me put it that way. I think that's a a, g- a good place to to wrap. Uh, my guest today has been Daniel McMurtry of of Tyra Partners. Definitely uh, follow him at Super Mugatu on on Twitter. Uh, check out his 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 post. Uh, and uh, he, he's got more to come uh, on Medium. Uh, Dana, would love to have you back later this year. We could uh, you know recap the the economy, the election, um, and uh, it's always great to chat. Absolutely, I can't wait to talk about all the ways in which I was wrong because uh, <laughs> it's going to get weird out there. Perfect, it, it's going to get weird. you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.